for several years now, there has been an annual meeting of a number of the Dharma teachers, both from here in the US and from Britain and continental Europe. And part of the purpose of the meeting is for the teachers to come together to explore and touch base with each other with regard to the activities of the previous year, to explore together some of the, the Dharma, and to recognize the agreements and the differences which pertain to teachings and ways of teachings. And there has been and there is a considerable degree of uh, appreciation and cooperation amongst the teachers, amongst the men and women at these meetings. And I've had the privilege of attending a number of them uh, myself when it's possible. And I was a little bit reminded of this through the, the headline in the current issue of the inquiring mind. And it con the issue contains a fairly lengthy interview with one of the teachers, Joseph Goldstein, who of course comes here regularly to California and is a co-founder of the center at IMS. And I noticed the headline for the, um, in for the interview with Joseph's uh, interview is possibilities of the path. And <coughs> I thought I would um, give a talk uh, this evening, and I'm sure he'll forgive me if I um, borrow a little bit from his title. And I would like to make a slight modification and call this talk Possibilities of the Path. When we give consideration to the path, and as Joseph uh, points out in, his, in the interview, how through the bringing together and the cooperation of different <coughs> aspects of what we call the spiritual path, they contribute to a path of uh, wisdom, a path of understanding, and it's a path leading, as he says, in the interview towards liberation. And a very significant resource in the teachings formulated in that way is, of course, the, the Buddhist text, what is called the sutras, the talks of the Buddha, which probably amount to about 20 volumes of, as I said, recorded talks, which were probably oral originally, and then at some later date, possibly two or three hundred years later, were put down on paper, and then through the generations have been um, maintained and distributed. In looking in the traditional way, we might ask what formulates the path. If we were to consider a spiritual path, what would be the vital ingredients, so to speak, of what makes up the path. 
And in that, in the text, what is described is three significant facets of it. Each one of those facets does need to be considered, to be reflected and meditated upon, and in the language of the path, to be practiced, to be cultivated and developed. And in the old language, that's the Pali language, which the Buddha is said to have spoken in, it's called the three Sika. Tree means three Sika, S-I-K-H-A, means training. So basically it's the threefold training. And this threefold training constitutes what is called the spiritual path for men and women to follow, leading towards liberation and all that accompanies that liberation. And each aspect of this sikar, of this threefold training, are mutually supportive and dependent on each other. The first being what is called sila, meaning ethics, uh, an ethical foundation for one's life. The ethical foundation is a vital factor for the next aspect of the path. So when the ethical foundation is referred to, it's referred to as not killing, not stealing, not engaging in sexual abuse, not telling lies, not using intoxicants, substance which unsettle uh, the mind, which lead to carelessness. And part of the reason, of, of course, is the social implications of awareness of these ethical foundations, but also when we ignore them, when we abuse these ethical foundations, it leads to conflicts and trouble, if not pain for the mind. And the mind which is unsettled, which is caught up in violence, caught up in stealing and exploitation and in abuse itself, cannot gain a measure of genuine quietude and genuine peacefulness because of those patterns. So then this second aspect of this threefold training then leads to what is called samadhi. And samadhi is sometimes translated as concentration and certainly for some people there is a remarkable capacity to be concentrated. Some people come into retreats, either the short retreat or the long retreat, and are able very efficiently and purposefully to focus the attention on a particular object in a sustained way. So sometimes some teachers do regard being focused, single-pointed, on a particular, and keeping that focus as a vital factor in the threefold training. But I would say, both from experience and from a good familiarity over 20 years with the text, that samadhi, which is the word, the Pali word for concentration, doesn't actually or necessarily have to mean one-pointed concentration on an object 
in a sustained way. And so the sense, I feel, of samadhi is a state of relaxed being, a mindfulness of the present, of the living present, and a certain quietitude inwardly of one's being. And in that quietitude and inwardness of uh, one's being, there's a certain quality, we might say, of receptivity. So for some people, there may be the capacity to be concentrated as a certain attribute of mind, but there are people, and there are many people, and I suspect as a teacher, the great majority of people, who find it inordinately difficult to be focused, single-pointed, on an object in a concentrated way. There are some who in the engagement in a very concentrated do appear to penetrate what we might say some of the more surface activities and begin to touch other levels. Sometimes those other levels might be described as piercing into cellular life. Sometimes the touching with the samadhi or with the concentration, rather with the concentration, might touch areas, deeply rooted areas, old patterns, old habits, old hurts and pains. And one can say in those experiences one has touched something. It's the language which we use. So in the exploration and in going inwardly, we may touch on places, or it appears that way. But sometimes going deep doesn't actually refer at all to touching pain and touching old hurt, because going deep also includes touching peace, touching joy, touching happiness, touching warmth and expansiveness, obviously equally as significant. So when we're speaking of concentration, or when we're speaking of concentration with some samadhi, as I described, that mindful, receptive awareness and attentiveness, it may be in either case something appears to be touched, that there's a contact through the focusing on some experiences which in the moment arise dependently and we experience something perhaps expected or perhaps unexpected. In this contact with some event, emotional, psychological, physical, even sometimes the contact as some people report, like touching subatomic particles. Such concentration, it can pierce through the, the outer appearances of solidity and fixation and touch those kind of levels. What tends to take place with this touching and with those experiences which take place is it leaves its impression. When the state of consciousness has moved from the familiar to the unfamiliar, to the known, to something quite different, when that experience ends in the meditation or spontaneously, 
the tendency is that it leaves a residue. And there is a contrast of experience. Before I was experiencing in this way, then I engaged in concentration, in meditation, and so forth. And then this was happening to me. And that leaves its impression. Understandably, it leaves a memory. And with the memory, we very easily identify with that form of experience, and then we say, this is what the path is all about. This is what the direction is. This is where I need to go to. So when that takes place, with the touch of memory, and the, the impression, and perhaps the appreciation, or the willingness, if it's painful, to explore deeply in that area again, comes about renewed faith, renewed energy, renewed motivation, a clearer expression of effort and determination, and the view which supports it, that I'm going to go from here, which is my ordinary mind, my just endeavoring to be mindful, my everyday consciousness, to there. And I want to go there because I know a little bit now about what there is. So it's not surprising with this view, commonly held view, and I'm not dismissing it, I'm just saying this is the tendencies we notice. But in that commonly held view which we experience, even when it's just a little sense in the day of the practice is getting better, I seem to be settling in. I seem to be going a little bit more deeper than when I arrived. It's all the same. I am like this. I'm now feeling a little bit of that or touching a little bit of that. And the natural wish, almost the feeling, almost the organic wish, is to go from here to there. And we see that the power of meditation, the power of mindfulness, of concentration or of samadhi does tend to reinforce this duality of going from here to there. <coughs> and sometimes we say, yes, that's true, but actually I'm not holding on to the memory. I'm not actually trying to get somewhere, but I'm not trying to renew and recover this previous experience which I had yesterday, this morning, last year, or whenever. But what I do experience is just by sitting here, just by being with the silence, just by being with myself and perhaps employing a little methodology of method and technique, it seems to happen anyway, regardless of my efforting, regardless of my will or my trying to go deeper. And we might all sit here on this retreat or on other times, and we might all report this, that, that we do experience these changes in the state of consciousness. We do experience times when it seems more shallow and superficial we do experience times when it seems deeper. We are attracted to what appears deeper, 
and we are less interested in the chattering, superficial, everyday mind. So then this, for us, can easily be formulated in the second factor of what is constituting the spiritual path, the meditative path towards liberation. But then, there is the third aspect of this way of conceiving the spiritual life. And this third aspect says to us, it's not enough just for ethical foundations, as a way of n not being violent in the world, being peaceful towards the world, and being peaceful towards oneself. It's not enough just to be developing depth of samadhi, or depth of concentration, because what is a further step in this threefold training, as it's conceived, is what is referred to as wisdom. The word is panya or prajna in the Sanskrit, and wisdom means understanding. Understanding is a very specific meaning. If sometimes you turn the concept around the other way, and you say, that which stands under. What I mean by that is, if there is a situation in our life which has been, or is causing, let us say, some difficulty in some way or other, and that problem, that issue for us, has dissolved. We have, not because the circumstances have gone away, but we have, but we have understood something. We have clearly understood this particular event. What that means is that it's, in a way, we say it stands under us. It means we're not haunted by it. We're not overwhelmed by those circumstances. The circumstances may still be continuing, or they may finish. So understanding of a situation means and implies that there is peace in that situation. If there is peace in the situation, that is understanding of a situation. When there is no peace in the situation, that's an indication to us that we haven't understood the situation. So when we look at this, we might ask, what is the relationship in this threefold interpretation of path and goal? What is the relationship between samadhi, the meditative work which you and I are engaged in here, and the understanding, and the in insight which contributes to understanding? So in our situation here, when, when we're engaged in the meditations, sitting, walking, standing, eating, and so forth, sometimes we draw conclusions about ourselves. Sometimes the conclusion we draw is, oh, I'm not getting any insight into myself. I'm not getting any understanding, or whatever. In a way, and I'm not playing with the words, in a way, if one sees that one isn't getting any insight and really understands that, I would call that an insight. <coughs> to see that clearly, and being honest with oneself, and to see that clearly, I would say, that is an insight. 
What I think frequently happens in various ways is it's not that the human being isn't releasing insights through the day. My faith and trust is that they are. Many situations, they come quite clear to us about many things, about what's necessary, or what's vital, or what's clarifying, or what needs to be done, or not needs to be done. Many things pointing out the way things are appearing. And that can occur through intimations, through feelings, through thoughts, through a, a kind of vague sense. But frequently, we don't recognize it. We don't truly acknowledge it because the intimations of the insights, the intimations of the understandings are obscured through so much diversity which is going on with ourselves. And so some of our work of mindfulness, of meditative awareness, is a small but significant contribution towards clearing the mind to be receptive to what is insightful. That what's being revealed to us every moment of our lives and is never obscure, not for a moment, can be so apparent, so obvious. Sometimes a person says, this threefold practice, this threefold training, ethics, meditative awarenesses, wisdom or under understanding, really matter a lot to me. I really see that any expression of intelligent life in some way or other needs to include and give real consideration, meditation and reflection to this. To refute or to deny or to neglect this somehow or other m might well be missing life in all of its expansiveness that we so easily can become the prisoners of identification, of desire, of wanting, of clinging and fear, that the threefold training and that conception, and it's one conception, that conception of spiritual life just gets neglected and, and forgotten. And at immense cost, personally, socially, spiritually, globally. In America, you have Batman. Well, I'm Batman. <laughs> so, in this formulation, and with the consideration, and the time, and the effort which accompanies this, it's not just that simple. The actuality is that in that, 
when we are viewing those three primary considerations, we'll be viewing them from a very particular standpoint. And the standpoint which we will be viewing from is the standpoint of self. Self relates to ethics. Self relates to samadhi, its presence, or its dreadful absence. And self will relate to understanding, present or hopefully en route. And self matters significantly in sila, that's virtue, in meditation or samadhi, and in understanding. Since self matters in those three, then a lot of measuring is going to take place. And if you look, I just want to make a slightly side uh, comment, comment here about, about self. One of the things that you may have noticed in our language in recent years, and very recent, within the course of our lifetime, and even more significantly in the last 20 years, is the frequency of use of self. Self-acceptance, spiritual self, self-actualization, self-realization, self-criticism, love for oneself. What we notice in our language more and more, both in spiritual life, in social life, and in personal life, and in uh, psychological life, an increasing use of the concept of self. With the frequency of its use, and with the investment which goes along with it, what we engage in in our life keeps being filtered through the very substance of self. The self matters, and the self comes to matter not for itself. It comes to matter in its relationship to what matters to it. And so, what matters to the construction of self means that we're constantly endeavouring to satisfy its insatiable appetite. Sometimes that shows itself in the material world. And we have to look at, look at that, at the cost of that in all the directions. Sometimes it shows itself in the mental or the emotional world. I'm not getting enough of. And in all which takes place to get enough of, emotionally. And in a way, it's become emotional materialism. The old physical materialism isn't satisfying self, one is disillusioned with it. Having more isn't giving any, any sense of real richness in life. It only increases one's sense of poverty, and is coming about a shift, and we're shifting into an emotional materialism. The same self is at work, switching its object, because we become tired of having so much, and now my needs, what I need for me. 
And then in that relationship, self gets accelerated into primacy and we spend not only time, but in some cases, enormous sums of money trying to make self feel self-satisfied. Look at the yoga journal, look at, look at the prices. <laughs> Hundreds of people spend a hundred dollars a day in the hope that it would provide self-satisfaction. And I think there's a lot of questioning to be done and looking, and it's not a whole, it's a whole area in itself where one can have a mental industry as going on as strongly as any consumer industry. So self, it seems to me, I don't want to get on people's cases here, my goodness me, you know, you <laughs> can write me some rotten letters tomorrow if you wish. But in, in that, as I say, self appears in the picture. But what happens too when it appears in the picture with regard to self and the spiritual? Then one sees, one looks at this, let us say one looks at the samadhi, one looks at insight or understanding. In order to perpetuate this idea this concept of a threefold training of development and practice, one has got to be fixed, if not imprisoned, into ideas of time. Fixing ourselves into ideas of time means that if I say I am experiencing this state of consciousness, this samadhi today, then in our looking at it, what's it related to? It's related to what it was like yesterday, and the day before, and the week before, and the week before. And then I think, well, I've done this amount of work on myself, I've looked into my consciousness through this, this, and this, and then the conclusion, and it might give a lot of comfort, the conclusion might be, I am making progress. I am making progress, and in that feeling of making progress, one is saying, I'm before in this time I was like this, and now I am moving along this path, I'm developing the path towards the liberation, towards what is called the unconditioned, the finality. Yet, it seems in the very course of things, in the coursing of mind, body, feelings, life, that wherever we stop for a moment, just for a moment or a few moments and are still, and just stopping, a little voice will come, there'll be a little irritation will come, and which will say, this can't be it. <laughs> And there will be a little sense, there's got to be something more than this. And this sense, this irritation of this, means it seems like we're perennially dissatisfied. And then we can find ourselves in an, an extraordinary bind here. We can find ourselves in the bind which says, I've got to keep developing this practice, I need to maintain my faith all the way through this, because if I stop the faith in this 
model, I'll get on shaky ground, so I'll keep going along the path, I'll stay on the path, and then hopefully from what I've been told and what I've been read, I'll eventually, and who knows, with a bit of luck in this lifetime, I'll have a real experience of the Big Bang Theory, <laughs> and then I'll be home, <laughs> safe and dry. And then people will come and people will say, this is what I did, this is what happened to me, since all human beings are rather similar, therefore it might well happen to you too. Good luck. All of this still, and my concern is with all of this, that it still keeps pertaining to self. It's still the mobilization, the charge of self. And so when another person comes along, and it's not me, when someone else comes along and says, there's no place to go, and there's nothing to do, and there's no path, and in that, then one will be left, as I mentioned before, with, oh, it's just sitting and breathing, because there's no place to go, there's no path. And it won't be long, usually after the first breath, that there'll be irritation will come <laughs> in. Start irritating, because one has now received an alternative message, another message, and one says, this is an impossible situation to be in. It's impossible insofar as the pursuit of an end seems to go on endlessly, and I'm not sure anybody seems to have got there. And just seeing this is it also doesn't seem to be it. <laughs> So, what are we going to do? <laughs> it's much easier in life, have you noticed, raising questions and answering them. So, in our looking at this, let's just explore it a little bit differently. If we just look at the situation that we are in right now, here together, we could easily say here, right now, the ethical guidelines are being observed, kept without even a thought, quite effortlessly. There is no destructiveness going on, there is no abusive going on, there is no exploitation go going on, etc., et of mind or body or another. So we might say there's no question here of having to develop this or having to improve it or whatever, since effortlessly and without the condition of thought as a motivating factor, it's already present for us. We might see in this situation, for some admittedly, that one is just sitting here in this uh, here-now situation and just listening to what is unfolding in this situation. In the very listening, possibly and hopefully in the course of the listening, there may possibly be 
a little a following, a kind of understanding of what's being spoken about. Enough, hopefully, to raise at least a little question inside of oneself, and hopefully even better, a little doubt inside of oneself about taking up a model of anything. Understand? Even this threefold model, which could be regarded as being useful, even the looking into that and the, uh, and the pattern of that, not even interested to take that up as a form. And similarly, when we're looking at the present situation and just the experiencing of the present, to actually come across and say, well, only this, this moment, it, there's just this, there's no past and no future, and to kind of propagate some eternal now, also itself just becomes a viewpoint just becomes another interpretation of the way things are. And when we do that, one model or one interpretation and another, the tendency is to wrap ourselves round it. Understand? The self begins to move in, takes up something, <coughs> makes something of it, and wrap itself around it, so to speak. With that comes much belief. Sometimes protection of it. Sometimes the wish to safeguard. Sometimes the wish to ensure its continuity. Sometimes having to defend it. Sometimes this versus that and becoming terribly dualistic. All of this tends to take place because thought is making something of something. Does the trees and the flowers do this? Does the grass and the birds and the s sky do all of this? No, of course not. Why on earth do we do it? Because self wants it. Self depends for its survival on this building. So it depends for its very existence on the supporting of constructions of thought. Then we look a little bit more closely again. We explore this, and then we start to explore some of the sacred cows of spirituality. One of the great sacred cows of spirituality is, I am, I am unenlightened, and I want to become enlightened. We've heard of this event under the tree two and a half thousand years ago. <coughs> Frankly, I wish it never happened. <laughs> I think it's been a mischievous event in, in, the, in, in the life of humanity because what it set up, not because of what, the, what Gautama, the, the Buddha, said, but what got set up afterwards in the interpretation of it. And so one takes one of the sacred cows, which one has upholds, and the sacred cow of, I am unenlightened. What on earth does that mean? 
it gets thrown around. Agreement here, agreement there. In the word, I am unenlightened. One repeats it to oneself in different ways. One repeats it to others. It becomes something. It gains some special existence to it. It, it, it becomes the truth for oneself. I am unenlightened. I am blind. I, I, I. So then the I says, ah, oh, this is unsatisfactory. Give me enlightenment. Based on this idea, I am unenlightened, comes thousands of years of historical conflict. The gradual path, the sudden path, no path, some path, short path, long path, only path, whatever. Needing a view to stand on in the beginning of I am unenlightened, and from this particular view comes all this troublesome conflict of religious life and spiritual practices. And we've got so used to believing what I says about itself that we are prepared to put up with anything because we don't want to question this position. So if that for us is something, then enlightenment is going to be something, because enlightenment is only of any use if we believe in unenlightenment. Only related to unenlightenment, it's like the dark, isn't it? We have the view, I am in darkness, I am sitting here in darkness, then we're going to be very interested in getting the lights on, and surely there's enough on in this room already. So would we be prepared not to cherish one, because the cherishing of one is the invitation and all the endless work to get to the other. Then we look again, we explore this and a little bit more, these belief structures and these ideas and these circulating thoughts, which are not really saying anything about anything. We explore this, this, this which is taking place, and then we look and we say, perhaps I really have a problem. I have a problem insofar as, if I look at myself, my being, my humanity, or whatever, I see that whatever is occurring in this phenomenal world is dependently arising. For some event to take place, it requires countless conditions for it to take place. Just your sitting here, my sitting in this posture, just all the conditions, just in the material world, for this to be actualizing itself. So I see that the world, as I perceive it, as I experience it, is a world with this variety of conditions. 
all dependently arising moment to the moment. And then I hear that the end of this path this is the unconditioned. This is the language, the unconditioned. So since all these experiences of the sila, the samadhi, the understanding is all conditioned by the events, how can I possibly go from conditioned to unconditioned? How can there be, do you understand, how can there be a relationship? If it's unconditioned, if it's unconditioned, do you understand, if it's unconditioned, then it's got no relationship to all these conditions. If, uh, because if it did, it wouldn't be unconditioned. So how can I possibly make some monumental leap out of my conditioning into unconditioning? So what use is it? All this path, 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 path. Conditioning, conditioning, conditioning. Since it's got no relationship to that which is called unconditioned. Oh, more problems. <laughs> so it ex looks and explores this, and explores again and again that somewhere in the mystery of all of this, in the, the wonder of all of this, that the events taking place seem to be based on some idea of assumptions of self. That the notions of self, the structures of self, the views, the beliefs of self, had some inherent truth to it. And perhaps it's just a structure. Perhaps it's just an unfolding belief. Perhaps all of this is just in the nature. In the nature in such a way that whatever self does in its phenomenal appearance, in a way perhaps it doesn't really make any difference to anything. So I would say that if we to see a little bit into the mythologies, unenlightened to enlightened, perhaps a wonderful and rather delightful liberation is actually to abandon both and the whole weight of it. to give both up. Not to cherish one position, nor cherish getting to another. Be free of the whole structure of it. Then the birds whistle in the evenings, and the trees grow, and the sun rises and the falls, and things un unfold themselves, and life goes on, and I and my pop in and say hello and pop out again. So, 
Let us be free to question. Let's not be shy of looking at the, the sacred cows of spirituality. Let's not make too much of I and my. Let's not make too much of self. Since all that is, in a way, rather wondrously, one might even say mystically empty. May all beings explore the nature of things. May all beings appreciate this wondrous unfoldment. May all beings be immediately liberated. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes, shall we?